Next Chapter Podcasts. Hey again, y'all. It's Bridget, your faithful host. Thanks for coming back again to check out more of our bonus content from Season 1 of Beef. We've got an excellent conversation for you today. But before we get into it, I want to ask again that if you like our show and want to hear more stories of juicy rivalries from both long and not so long ago, please do me a favor. Go leave a five-star rating and write a review of our show on whatever app you're listening to this on. Or just tell your friends, coworkers, enemies, etc. Because the best way that we can make more beef happen is by getting the word out. Now, let's get to our bonus content. The full interview with Dr. Portia Moltzby. Dr. Moltzby is a professor emerita of ethnomusicology at Indiana University, where she also formally directed the Ethnomusicology Institute. She was the founding director of the Archives of African American Music and Culture at Indiana University and a consultant for the National Museum of African American Music. She's also the founding director of the Indiana University Soul Review, accredited course specializing in Black popular music. She co-edited African American Music, an introduction, the definitive book on Black music in America. She was also a consulting scholar for PBS's award-winning series about the civil rights movement, Eyes on the Prize. And her work is the basis for Carnegie Hall's Timeline of African American Music. In our conversation, Dr. Moltzby and I talk about the origins of soul music, Black culture's unique effect on art, and the bitter divide between singers James Brown and Joe Tex. Dr. Maltzby, thank you for being here. We're so honored that you're going to be part of this conversation. So how important is Black music and the history of Black music to the culture of the United States? It's very important. In fact, uh, Black music forms the foundation for popular culture of the United States, beginning back in the 1800s with the notion of Black-based minstrelsy and through the era of jazz, or those early years of jazz, changing the character and the sound of American popular music. And then from jazz, you know, ragtime, um, then we move into early R&B uh, with the heavy blues foundation. And uh, again, the whole character of American popular music, which was pretty much songs from you know, the European traditions, more formal composition, uh, with more of a focus on melody and less rhythmic, you know, less dance in terms of the kinds of dance styles that became popular beginning in the 20s, you know, the roaring 20s, you know, with the jazz foundation ragtime, uh, changed significantly the, the, the orientation of American popular culture. And I'm very careful to use the word popular. Why popular? Like what, like, why is that an important distinction to make? Uh, because the other the other European tradition comes more from the uh, the Western European classical you know tradition and uh, and so it's making a distinction between a kind of music and culture that evolved in the U.S. that was distinctively you know American in character, which had some you know of course European elements, but the the uh, the, uh, the the real foundation for the sound for the visuals for the 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 um, the fashion all of that combined together is clearly influenced by black culture. Let's talk about a couple more of those genres of black culture. Um, so let's talk about soul music. Why is the genre of soul music so special, and where does it come from? Well, soul music is a byproduct uh, byproduct of the really the transition between so called the civil rights and black power movement. So soul music. It really is a byproduct of black power. In essence, uh, a new kind of music came into being that that uh, encompassed the whole spirit, the energy, the the sounds of the people, the 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 intensity of the period, and certainly the message of the period, of you know the social messages, the political messages, and so really became a byproduct of black power. And became a black power became a movement, you know, the black power became a movement that had to do more with it started off as a philosophy or a political statement. And then it gradually acquired other kinds of meaning, cultural meaning that was displayed through fashion, hairstyle, cooking, and all of that. And then music. Uh, in fact, soul became 
a social a, a term that gave social and cultural meaning to black power. So black power was, you know, it began political. You know, it, it had to do with the the uh, uh, the the time where the emphasis was shifting from sort of being an accommodationist culture, you know, integrating into a more of a nationalist perspective where black people should embrace themselves, their heritage, be themselves, and 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 uh, and just take on, you know, self-empowerment, you know, become more independent economically, take charge of education directives as to what's important, you know, the integration of black history, the integration of understanding our relationship with Africa. So it became this, you know, so it was a cultural movement in terms of the arts, in terms of literature, you know, poetry, uh, dance, music, visual arts, everything. So it became, all of this became defined under this label, soul, which has its origins really in the, in the, this around 64 when the, the businessman uh, during the, the uprisings of the mid-60s, began to put cards in their windows, or signs in their windows with soul brother. That, in other words, this is this this business is owned by a black person. Don't loot it. Don't whatever. And then soul radio, the radio DJs picked up on this term and began to identify their stations as soul radio. And then soul radio, then what kind of music are you going to play? Soul music. And then the, the, and the, the point is, too, that the music, every generation of musicians bring about new sounds. You know, they bring their values to existing traditions and their own innovations to existing traditions. So soul music kind of evolved out of rhythm and blues with this new generation who's, who's bringing another kind of uh, meaning to music, which means a new kind of music is evolving from rhythm and blues. Nothing falls out of the air. You know, it comes out of something. And uh, so the period is important because it was an era of soul moving that encompassed the political, the social, the cultural. And it was a movement. It was a lifestyle. It was a musical style. It was all of that cooking style, a fashion statement. You remember the bell bottoms and the, the natural hairstyles, the huge afros, the braids. It clearly was a political statement about self, self-empowerment, self-identification. And, uh, and what was interesting about that era is that the mainstream later began to pick up on the notion of soul. So at first it was, it was confined to black communities, the use of the term. Didn't have any meaning outside. But then when it clearly this, the, it, it became a cultural movement, mainstream media had no choice but to pick it up. So I remember when uh, Aretha Franklin then was featured on, I think it was Newsweek. And, and in my opinion is that soul represented the first time that mainstream America picked up on a term that was first defined and used by black people. And that term was soul. Uh, you know, it had a uh, soul also dealt with communication, a communication style, you know, a behavioral style, soul brother, certain kinds of handshakes, all of that came out of this movement. So everything about blackness was soul. And I guess the point that I want to also make is that it became institutionalized, the term, later, starting with when um, the, the mass media picked up on this term. So in 1967, Billboard magazine, which is the leading trade magazine in popular music, first published an issue of its series called The World of Soul, you know, to document the impact of blues and R&B on musical culture. So in 67, Billboard is recognizing a new category called soul. In 68, Esquire magazine published an article called An Introduction to Soul. And Time magazine had an article on Aretha Franklin entitled Lady Soul Singing It Like It Is. So in essence, uh, um, what I'm saying is, and then in 69, 
Billboard magazine actually changed the name of the rhythm and blues charts to soul. So it's the first time that in society that mainstream media and the music industry adopted a term first coined, sanctioned, and used by African-Americans to describe themselves. That was a real victory. And it showed the power of Black power and of that movement. Wow. I So something that you said that sticks with me is I had no idea about putting the soul signs in the window. And, and where I live in D.C., after 2020, when you walk around the city, they still have businesses that say Black-owned business, you know, and it's clear to me what they're trying to demonstrate. I had no idea about the signs in the window that were, you know, this is a soul business, just so you know. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So it just became this identifying uh, term for Black people in distinguishing themselves, their businesses, their culture, their way of being from the mainstream and being proud of it. So let's talk about another part of Black culture around this time, the Chitlin Circuit. Tell us what the Chitlin Circuit was and why it was so important to Black music. Well, the Chitlin Circuit actually started in the 50s, I mean, in a mass way, in that the rhythm and blues, because remember, uh, we're living at that time in a segregated society. You know, the father, we're in the middle of Jim Crow era where strict segregation was the law of the land, and particularly in the South. And uh, so for performers to, you know, they didn't have access to mainstream uh, venues, not at all. So there were promoters that put together, you know, throughout the countries, these areas where major clubs or theaters like the Apollo or the, let me see, it was called the Howard and I'm trying to remember the cities. Not, but each city had a major theater. And then, so that became a part of Chitlin Circuit. In fact, it was a string of clubs and venues, smaller clubs. Because I remember in Orlando, I grew up in Orlando, and on this Main Street, Church Street, there were lots of clubs, and and that's where the, these artists came and played, and in other cities, Coco. So they make a tour through, you know, through the South, through our Florida, Orlando included, doing different clubs in Orlando. And most of the club setups at that time were they were called setups. You didn't sell alcohol. You brought your own alcohol and they gave you ice and glass and other kinds of uh, food. But uh, but that was the main the main source. Let's say the Chitlin Circuit was the, the, the outlets for black as for black perform for the the Chitlin Circuit was a series of performing venues for black artists. And in some cases, white artists came, but they 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 refused to the the city ordinances refused to have blacks and whites sitting together. So whites were often up in the balcony, you know, in larger theaters in the south. So that that was that that was called a Chitlin Circuit. There was just a series of clubs and theaters throughout the U.S., including the North, you know, D.C., uh, Philadelphia. They all had them. And then the clubs. So in the smaller areas or like Orlando, we didn't have a major theater per se, but we had a series of large clubs. And so the clubs were just a part of that, uh, that, uh, that uh, circuit. And one other thing I want to say about the Chitlin Circuit, it allowed local performers to get exposure. I mean, to, it allowed local performers to, to, to you know, get that experience of performing with, well-known performers, because local performers often open the show. And I mean, we're very seasoned local performers, and that's not anybody. And and so that, in other words, became almost a, a uh, what do you want to call it, uh, the first stage of moving up the ladder. Because in some cases, being exposed to local uh, groups provided backup musicians for some of these bands when some of their members couldn't come or accidents or whatever happened because there was a very dangerous, uh, you know, time, you know, traveling in station wagons throughout the country like that, a lot of accidents. And then uh, and then some of the sidemen got ill. And so they could, they began to know local musicians. So it was, it was, it, it was advantageous to everybody. So let's get into talking about the rivalry between two specific soul singers, James Brown and Joe Tex. Uh, how are James Brown and Joe Tex similar, and how are they different? 
Oh, they're very similar in terms of background. They both are from rural areas, southern in the south, Texas, and I think I think it was South Carolina for Brown, and he was in Georgia, and and uh, so they both had rural backgrounds, raised in rural communities. Secondly, they both were very aligned, very much aligned to the black church. Their style emulates that of black preachers. And, and they, they'll tell you that. James Brown said, I wanted to be a preacher and I go home and I practice, you know, what, what he saw him do in church. And uh, he brought that over into his performance uh, style. And, and then James Brown sang with the gospel group. The same was true for Joe Text. You know, and I'm talking about rural, you rural black churches where, you know, it's fire. I mean, it's fire and, and intense, those those uh, services. And uh, and that Joe, um, I mean, Joe, yeah, Joe Tex and James Brown both have that shared religious, let's say, reference for performance. Because black preachers, they, 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 they were performers. They performed. And they often did provide the, the, the uh, reference for performance for, for the artist. So that's something else they had in common. They also had in common a, a background of somewhat poverty where they did all kinds of extra, let's say, extra activities for money, for tips. Both shine shoes, both dance for tips. You know, so that was just a part of how they, you know, they were, uh, how they grew up and how they survived. And also what I thought was very interesting about them, it really struck me when I was growing up listening to them too, the two, they both had this coarseness to their voice. And I think that again had to do with emulating black preachers. Uh, <clears throat> so I would say that those were the, the major, let's say, unifying or similar characteristics uh, for both. Well, I... They had so much in common. I like your point about the raspy voice. Uh, I grew up in the South. I've been to many a black church. I know exactly that that cadence and that that vocal quality that you're talking about. That I, I can really hear them emulating when I think of them singing. Yeah, they start, oh, you know, not, yeah, they're gonna. That that was you know every 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 culture has a uh, some kind of reference, cultural reference, for the way things are done, or the way speech is performed or singing or done or playing instruments. Everybody has a culture. And then we all emulate what we hear. That's all we know. And then eventually we bring our own innovation to the existence of whatever exists. Um, what was also interesting about the two of them, I us say that they share it in common, a very dynamic visual show. You know, the dance, the background dancers, them dancing. They're all accomplished dancers. You know, the, the, the costumes, you know, the choreography, you know, just everything. They share that. And again, but they have a shared background. And, you, you know, you think in church, you know, even whatever, however meager the financial resources were, churches, people going to dress in church. They're going to wear their Sunday best. You know, they're going to be colorful. They're going to wear pink, the men, blue, green. <laughs> you know, where did you grow? Where did you spend time in the South? Virginia. Virginia, yes. And I, I remember this so vividly, um, you know, seeing, you know, in the churches. It was, I was just fascinating. And for me, my um, first real experience with a live performance of a professional musician was James Brown. Oh, really? James Brown pre performed frequently in Orlando. I had an older brother, and I, he he go go see James Brown, and James Brown also offered occasionally matinees for the kids. I remember very bit not far from where I live now, which is where I grew up. There was a skating rink, and and James Brown performed matinees for kids in that skating rink. And I remember seeing him and being totally mesmerized by the performance. And I think that that really, well, I know it did. That influenced my vision for the IUSO review when I was tapped to, and then coming to Indiana University, that would be one of my assignments to develop this popular music ensemble. Because I had played in bands. That, that's, that was the interest in me in, in various aspects of the university. 
And uh, and so I believed in shows, and I believed in what I call you know a kaleidoscope of the of black arts. You know the movement, the dance, the singing, the MC. I believed in all of that. But my first exposure to that kind of show was James Brown, the James Brown Review. The Indiana University Soul Review is patterned after the James Brown Review. So I was so mesmerized as a kid. I was very, I think I might have been my first time seeing him. I think I was maybe in seventh or eighth grade. Then I saw him in high school. Two, I saw him, I think, three times in Orlando. And I just remember just having this impression, wow, to see this, this, this vibrant performance that to me encompassed all aspects of black artistic expression. And I remember just being mesmerized by that and and thinking, this is there is something to this. And ironically, my career moved in that direction. But I think that was my first impressionable moment that I knew I wanted to understand the totality of Black expressive culture. And I saw that in the James Brown show. Wow, what a memory. Oh, very distinct. I can see it now. I can visualize James Brown on the state in in the uh, in that skating rink. Do you feel like that's why you went to? Like, did that inspire you to study African American music academically and professionally? I think because sub- subconsciously, yes, because I grew up in 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 two cultural tra- musical traditions: the classical tradition. I I, I studied started playing piano at age five, taking formal lessons. So I grew up playing classical music, but I was always immersed in black music. I had a brother 15 years older, and he loved all kinds of music. So we had jazz, classical music, symphony, you know, symphonic recordings, opera recordings, and he loved the blues and rhythm and blues. And he went to any time any artist came to Florida, he, he went to those performances. And so he would sit and tell me, about the music. He said, listen to, he called me doll baby. Listen to this doll baby. Um, how, what this musician was doing, the jazz or the blues or the classical. And he just always explained how this music affected him. And in fact, he's the one that encouraged my musical. He felt I had talent. And he, he told my mother, he, we had a piano and I would bang out tunes that I heard. And he told mother that he thought I had talent and he, she should have me, you know, test it, go to someone who taught music. And, and that, that's what happened. And I went to college to become a classical pianist, a concert pianist. But I also grew up, as I started saying earlier, in, our, in the African-American tradition. So I heard all of this music. I heard uh, um, WLAC. We had a black radio station, Sun Up, Sun Down. So I heard all this music, a lot of gospel music <laughs> after school. And then WLAC broadcast from Nashville that after sunset, then it, it was on the air all night. And that was all black music. So I grew up with that, plus being in the church. I perform, I played piano in the various churches. So I grew up with, with all these traditions. And then in high school, uh, I was a part of a, a vocal group. We had a you know, do-out vocal group. And, and so it was so, my whole musical experiences was always, let's say, bi-musical. A bicultural, two different, two distinct different cultures. And then I think that what added to that interest was my brother uh, ended up leaving here. And then he uh, went to, he was my medical doctor and went on into psychiatry. So he really became involved in psychiatry and music and the impact on uh, it's how he could help, particularly with black people. That's why he went into psychiatry. He is, his first medical practice was in Cocoa, Florida, all black community, the first black doctor. And he realized that a lot of the, the illnesses had more to do with psychological and it had to do with the, you know, the whole social historical uh, framework out of which black people had to survive. So immediately he was con- connecting music, I mean, the social environment to the medical or physiological or whatever those conditions were. And he also saw music as being a healing factor. And uh, so anyway, I say that to say, so when he left there and went into the military, and he was stationed in Japan, he sent me recordings of Japanese music. And I was so fascinated by those sounds. And wherever he went, you know, he always thought of me. And uh, he, he enrolled me in the Columbia Music Club so I could get classical music every month. And then he bought me my first organ. 
when I got a band together in my undergraduate college. So I was always exposed. I guess that's the bigger point. I was always exposed to a wide range of music. And I knew after my undergraduate studies, I wanted something more than just Western music formally. I wanted to bring meaning to my own tradition. That again, I think that James Brown show was the, you know, subconsciously stayed with me. That I knew there was something as valuable about our musical expression as was the classical music expression. They were just different. And I ended up at a, at a college that happened to have had a graduate from the University of Wisconsin who felt that that would be a perfect fit for me for graduate study because I, he realized I was sort of non-traditional in my approaches and interests and all of that. And he felt that Wisconsin would, could accommodate that and I could really thrive and grow you know, at the university. And then the other catch to that was my brother was on the medical faculty at the University of Wisconsin. Oh. <laughs> I didn't think about it at the time. And I thought, okay, well, I thought, oh yeah, my brother's there. Let me ask him what he thinks. Because I was going to Cornell. I hadn't applied to the University of Wisconsin. Hadn't thought about it. That's amazing. But anyway, but that's how my interests, you know, um, expanded beyond classical music to, you know, to the broader uh, world cultural, let's say, sounds and expressions. And I wanted to engage with that. And I think with that Japanese recording, it just solidified to me there's a bigger world of music than Western classical music. Mm, that's that's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. That's really beautiful. Um, so, you know, talking about James Brown and Joe Tex, you know, you mentioned that they're both these these musicians who are who are, have their backgrounds in the rural black church. They have so much in common. What do you think caused their rivalry? What do you know about the rivalry that Joe Tex and James Brown had? Well, you know, I don't know if they looked at themselves as being rivals, but they really had a very similar style. You know, I look, I listened to uh, one of uh, Joe Texas' songs early on struck me was, I gotcha. And the way that song starts, it's like, oh, you know, you, you, you think it's James Brown unless you, you know, go past that. Right away, it has that, that, that particular insertion and that, that hoarseness, that coarse type voice style. And I, and I think the fact that they both had a very dynamic stage show, very similar. In fact, I read somewhere, I don't know how true it is, that the whole thing of dropping the microphone you know, down and picking it up, or that it was an accidental thing with Joe Tex. He was leaving stage, the stage and his foot happened to hit the microphone and, and he, it was too far for him to reach down to pick up and he put his foot on it and then it, to flip it up. And then the audience you know, started going wild. They thought it was a part of the act. But he was just simply trying to keep the microphone from, from being destroyed. <laughs> and so he said after that, you know, he that's something I read somewhere a while back that he incorporated that in his show. And so the two of them have a very similar stage style. They, they, they really work the stage footwork. You know, the dance part of it is just very similar. So if any if, if we talk about rivals and I think it would be perhaps audience people comparing them. I don't know if they ever shared a show. I don't know. But where I do see them being a, a difference between the two on another level is that and Joe Tex died early. I think he was in his 40s or something. He had a heart attack. And whereas James Brown outlived him you know, tremendously. So Joe was popular in the 60s and really around the mid-60s, I think was his first hit, 64, something like that, You know, through maybe 72. Whereas James Brown had a slight edge on him in that James Brown was always current with the flavor of the time. You know, the, so James Brown, you know, he starts in the 50s. He's doing straight up R&B, you know, with the same church intensity, this and that. But in the 60s, you know, with the, the, the black power movement, James Brown very much became plugged into that ideology. And then in around 68, Although the movement starts around 64, it catches on and it's full scale around 68. And, and uh, Curtis Mayfield, I mean, he's in 64. You know, this is my country. Um, uh, what is it? Uh, keep on pushing. And then James Brown brings the whole energy that's really exploding, you know, because 64 is still civil rights, you know, that movement. 
And then Black Power is around, it's coming into being 64, 65, but it's, it's full scale, 67, 68. And James Brown is Say It Loud, I'm Black and I'm Proud. And 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 I want something about give me nothing, open the door, I'll get it myself. And so he, James Brown engaged with social and political messages, whereas Joe Tex never did. Joe Tex remained pretty much straight up, but had that soul sound in dealing with the everyday. He dealt with some of his songs were more, you know, dance oriented and uh, more, uh, I don't want to say, yeah, comic type, you know, lighthearted comedy. Whereas James Brown, that's where I see the separation, you know, went the the uh, the political, and and, uh, and and even making the transition into funk, you know, funky president, and so he was very much socially aware, and capitalizing on that, uh, you know, that uh, I mean, expand. I shouldn't say capitalizing, but just exp- bring it bring it into music, the the uh, actions on the street other concerns that were being articulated by politicians, black politicians, preachers. So now he's bringing that message and then black radio becomes the messenger with the deliverer of the message. So, and that's when Joe Tex never quite entered into that phase, into that. So I think that, so that's why I think on one hand, James Brown started getting more notoriety than Joe Tex at a certain phase. But Joe Tex still, he produced a lot of hits. So there became, they started off pretty much the same in, in R&B, you know, straight up R&B soul, early soul, before it was called soul, it was still called R&B, but now we call it all soul, kind of beginning with Sam Cooke in 64, change is going to come. So that's when that other kind of message was being introduced into the music that Curtis Mayfield made popular and then ultimately radio began to play it. Black radio was even reluctant early on uh, to play some of this music, mainly called Black Radio was owned by white people. <laughs> well, that is one of the questions that I have. Like, to what extent do you feel like the segregation of the music industry kind of forced James Brown and Joe Tex into, you know, stiffer competition than they might have otherwise been? You know, do you think that segregation really exasperated this rivalry, you know, less opportunities for black artists. Oh yeah. Oh, no question about it. No, because we're all entertaining the same audience. And, uh, cause even Joe Tech songs, James Brown songs, some of them made the, the billboard pop charts, but they were very low, no hard made any, any action, mainly because soul music was so different. I mean, R and B, you could take part of it cause R and B, then you had your rock and roll. So, you know, coming off of R and B, so that brought a new kind of feel for white, uh, let's say, mainstream popular culture. And then white artists began to, you know, pick up on that. And then it became so-called rock and roll. But then soul was so specific to black people. And, and particularly the messages. Well, first of all, the energy of, let's go back, the energy, the sound, the aesthetic of the sound, the sound ideal was so different from mainstream. It was, like I say, it was too church. It was too intense. You know, it was it was just all about a kind of experience that whites didn't have. That was hard for them to relate. Um, whereas the the so called R and B, as it evolved with Lil Richard and and uh, what's his name, uh, uh, guitar player, uh, oh shoot, Fast Domino. I'm now uh, forgetting the guitar players, uh, Chuck Berry. I mean, he's a piano player, but what's the man's name uh, from St. Louis? I'll think of it. But the guitarist, uh, well, Bo Diddley was one guitarist, and the other one was bigger than Bo Diddley. His name escapes me. But nevertheless, they kind of, you know, that went into mainstream. Mainstream audiences began to accept those artists uh, because Elvis Presley kind of helped expose the music, and then they wanted the originals, et cetera. But Soul and the style of Brown and Tex, Joe Tex, was so distinctly in opposition from the European aesthetic, that sound, the screaming, you know, the, the raspiness of the voice, the, the stuttering, the kind of spoken style was just very different. And pop, it was just too radical for, for pop radio. So then, of course, they're all these singers are competing for the same venues for performance. They're competing for the same uh, 
limited playlist of black radio. And then, of course, uh, most performers made their money through live performances. So then that's when everybody had to up the ante you're on the shows because performing in black people are very critical. We're a discerning audience. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They, like they said they could do anything for white people and they'd like it. But, you know, you got to bring a, another kind of game to play before black people. So they, they talk about that and uh, how, as you all know, in, in the polytheory, it booed off the stage. And if blacks, if, if you did not appeal to their understanding of performance, then you would be booed off the stage. So they're very well aware of that. And I think that in itself forced up in the ante, you know, in all of these performances. Well, let's talk about that, because I do know that a big point of contention for both men was this claim that one of them was stealing the other's dance moves during live performances. Why was showmanship so important to these artists? And why were they so protective of their performances, of their dance moves? Well, because, first of all, Black audiences expected that. Black audiences dictated what performance we're going to do on stage. Nobody wanted to be booed. You know, nobody wanted to go home and you can't sing or you can't move. Nobody wanted that. So the, the whole the whole Black cultural, the whole uh, Black cultural expression involves, this is what a lot of people didn't understand, but I mean critics outside the community, that dance and music and visuals are all a part of, the, all different sides of the same coin. So they're not separated. That is, that's from an African perspective, it is not separated. There is, in Africa, there is, no, there is not a separate word for music and dance. They're all considered to be one act. So in our minds, even though we don't necessarily intellectualize that way, but it's something that's just, that has been passed on to us from gener- through the generations that, are, like going to church, you go to church dressed a certain way, period. It's been, how do you know that? Eh, that's what my mama did. That's what my grandmama did. That's what. So it passes down over generations. The same thing with music. When you're going to perform, even in church, you think about those people, they're going to dress up, those gospel quartets or whatever you used to see in the churches. They're going to dress up. They're going to bring the A game, they, they, particularly the quartets. They're going to have those movements. It's just a part of it. So the, the, the challenge was, how do I outmove the next person? So there was constant competition among all of them, all the quartets, competition among the solo singers like James Brown, like Joe Tex, and Otis Redding had his own show. Because think about Otis Redding, he had his own. Everybody had to have a trademark style. That's why they were protective of that. And yes, I mean, yeah, there were similarities between the James Brown, because there is a thing about, okay, who, who first had the mic? situation. You know, they're both known for the way they drop the mic to mic to the floor and hit the bring it back up or whatever. So so who started that? Now the belief is it was an accident started by Joe Tex. And then the audience, you know, say, oh, I mean they went wild. It was something different. Black people, you have to bring an A game. You got to do something that's unusual. What's gonna move you? They don't want to say see the same old little step here there. Now think about Greek life. That's you take the fraternities. Now they all start on the same plane, kind of stepping, but each one of them has to have something that's a little distinctive, even though they can think, okay, I did that, so they're going to incorporate that. And I think they do. I think they do see little things. Oh, we need to put a twist here, but we're going to add our signature to it. And and so so there are a lot of similarities. You think about it between you know those movements of the, the Greek carries over into the movements of. But the notion of having an MC, then having dancers behind you, and then having the, the band moving. Now, supposedly, Little Richard was the, the one that started that, having the band, um, I mean, having the, the band, you know, flash the horns and all of that. And, and then I interviewed Sam of Sam and Dave, and he told me that they got, their, uh, they got it from watching the family marching band. So they knew they had to bring some excitement to the stage. And he said that he said, we hadn't really seen little Richard, but he said, I saw how that band was marching and how those, those trumpets were swinging the instruments and the saxophones, they were marching and swinging and they, you know, they had choreographed moves. And he said, that's what we need to do in our show. And he said, and we recruited some of the musicians from, from the horn section, members of the horn section from the Florida and marching band. I love that. 
So it, it becomes a big cultural understanding of performance, I guess, is the point I'm making. So there's a, there's a reservoir of, of, uh, of techniques that you, you just have to understand and you have to incorporate them. And then you also much put your signature, you know, on that particular technique or performance element. So James and Joe, they they would kind of take these personal and direct jabs at each other in their songs. How common was it for musicians to address private matters in their lyrics in the 60s? Not not that common, not towards each other. Um, not towards, you know, it became very big in hip hop, of course. <laughs> of course. Uh, but, but not as common, not as common. I think, uh, and some did it, you know, in, in fun, in jest. And then some did it, some got offended. So um, particularly if or if the audiences is now beginning to associate what you think was your invention with somebody else, then that's when the jabs are going to appear. No, that's mine. He took it from me or whatever. So I think it, but, it, but again, it, it was just, uh, it's out of need. The African-American communities expected a certain level of performance and they expected to see certain codes in these performances because that meant something to them. Um, you know, they like variety. They like starting low and building to intensity and just whatever acrobatic artists would do, they would do. Acrobatic move, they do. And uh, yeah, and they were. There were there's no question about it. There are similarities. But, you know, there has to be similarities when they're drawing from the same source, you know, for inspiration. Mm-hmm. That's a great point. You know, something interesting about James Brown is that he was a man who it seemed like controversy really followed him, uh, yet he was able to maneuver through all of these different pitfalls and controversies and issues to become this very respected and talented musician. How do you think he was able to pull that one off? Well, I think he had good guidance from the background, his managers, and you know, trying to smooth things over, keep him focused. And, uh, and I mean, you just can't beat a certain level of musicianship. You take somebody like Michael Jackson. I mean, all the controversy surrounded him. Who knows what was true and not true? But you still, the guy was just a fantastic performer. You just you, and same thing with James Brown. Same thing with Joe Tex. You whatever they did. You're not, you know, all his incidents when he went to jail, when he beat his wife or whatever, you know, whatever the thing was, uh, he always, music always trumped, you know, this other. And I think for James Brown, he was viewed as, as such a hero for a long time because of his stance uh, with his uh, political social lyrics of, of that era. And that really endeared him with a lot of people. So Joe Tex never really got the same level of notoriety or fame as James Brown, even though they, he had a lot of respect among his peers. Why do you think that is? Well, I think because, first of all, James Brown got, I think they could have started, well, first of all, James Brown was, along a lot, was around a lot longer. He began in the 50s. So he had developed a very exciting show in the 50s. And then James Brown was perhaps if if one of, if not the first, to put out a James Brown live album. And that album really just endured everybody. Even though his label, King Records, were against his doing it, he financed that record himself. He, he, he organized it because King Records refused to do it. Their vision was, their view was, who would be interested in a, a record of, of, of songs already recorded with a bunch of black folks screaming over it. <laughs> That was that. That is literally what he said. Uh, Nate, that was his name. Uh, Nathan, what's his name? Anyway, the owner of King Records and uh, and James Brown. You know, he he understood what he understood the black audience. He said, "No, no, I'm going to do this," and he financed it himself. It was his best selling record of all times, and uh, because he understood, he understood black community life. Now, so he had that edge on Joe Tex because that album came out before Joe, I think, I think the album was 60 something. And Joe Tex was just really getting a footing, you know, in the market by this time. And James Brown is very well established. And then, of course, they over they overlap, unfortunately, with the notion of black power. So James Brown is getting a lot of airplay. So is Joe Tex on another level. But James Brown is getting a slightly different kind of notoriety because of his, his position, you know, his social conscious message. Now, of course, establishment, they didn't like that, but, but he endured that as well. 
And then I think the bigger issue is had, because Joe Tex near the end of his career, he was still racking up number one hits. He just died too soon. I think his last hit, I don't, I don't know exactly when he died, but he was like 40s. It was in the 70s, I think, pretty sure. And so he wasn't there as long. So I think that's in, in the end because he was an outstanding performer. And then I also think, again, it has to do with marketing, his label. He was on a smaller label, Dow. And I believe, I think some of his music later on was maybe distributed by Atlantic. I don't remember now. But James Brown was on a a, a very recognized, very well or machine in terms of marketing label, King Records. And so you can't, you know, it's hard to do that, the marketing. So there are, there are a number of factors that I think uh, that, that, you know, that his sound, Joe Texas sound was great. It's one of those strong muscle shows, sound with the horns, rep- re- uh, resembling the Stike sound somewhat with the horns, but it's clearly a muscle shows production, a mixture of, you know, black and country musicians. But his music was great. But I think at a certain point of high level intensity of the country, what we were feeling, that his music didn't meet that same level of intensity like Otis Redding's music did. I mean, he it was just fiery until he died. And then, of course, then James Brown came, you know, was overlapping and his music was fiery, as were some of the others. And then at the near the, well, Joe Tech's music was slowly evolving into funk and uh so I think that's why he he just he wasn't he didn't live long enough, you know, to make the kind of mark that he could have. And then the the turbulent times impacted on his popularity compared to James Brown. Do you think in the end that the competition that Joe Tex and James Brown had made them better performers? Oh, absolutely. I think competition makes you better regardless because it's like I got to up the ante. I've got to, what else can I do here? Because they're very similar in style, the way they work the stage, move across the stage, they're dancing. They're very similar. I think the, the difference was, again, access to the music, you know, the, the marketing, who had the broader exposure through music. Um, again, that also affected the kinds of venues that they could play. There was a chitlin circuit, but it began to kind of open up more into the 70s. And uh, yeah. And then the, the choice of, of radio, you know, it's rotation. James Brown was heard all over the place because of the social political message. And so they're rotating how many songs a day. So Joe Tex may not get into that rotation, although he had, he had several number one hits now, even while Brown was having his hits. But it was just a different kind of hit. Or, you know, you you compare somebody like a, a female artist. Okay, Aretha, Gladys Knight. Aretha always kind of got more play than Gladys Knight. I thought Gladys Knight, I thought she's a, one of my favorites. And, and she continued to last as long as Aretha. But why doesn't her name rise up to the level of Aretha? You know, and I think her music, but Aretha had a different kind of intensity. Gladys Knight also had church roots. But it, it has to do with that intensity, that that rotation. On radio, and uh, you know, Lady of Soul, Queen of Soul had it. Then she it didn't suppress. Then when mainstream press plays a role, Aretha got you know a lot of you know with her soul. And Gladys Knight was quite a little, little behind you know with that sound, and her sound was a little different, a little more subtle than Aretha. But just great. She's one of my favorite artists. Me too. So that's why I think that it. Yeah, and like I said, all those artists, you know, had, like Little Richard, everybody had a band. They're going to try to be as, as uh, you know, like Little Richard. And Lord knows when you have them on the same show, some refuse to play with others because of that. They didn't want to have the second building. So oftentimes Little Richard or uh, Joe Tex or James Brown, they would they were not going to share a stage with the equal. They're going to share a stage with someone who's up and coming because they can't be upstaged by their opening act. And who's gonna who's gonna be the opening act? Joe Tex or James Brown? Neither one of them would sell for second place. Now another thing I found was interesting. Now Joe Tex's music ballads are a little more subtle than James Brown's ballads. You know, I mean, when I say subtle, meaning the uh, the timbre of his voice, the way he approaches the song, is is a little more subtle. 
you know. So anyway, with James Brown, it's still like that that intense, please, please, <laughs> you know, or it's a man's world. And whereas Joe Texas song, you know, uh, uh, what is it called? Uh, uh, what's this? Uh, Hold on to what you have. That's that's more of a subtle song, you know. So I think there are those differences too. The way they treated ballads, his was, but then he didn't need to sound like James Brown. He needed. I, I liked what he did, and it obviously worked because those songs were number one and number two on the R and B charts. They were just different, and so sometimes that's tough too when you're comparing. It's like it's like do you always compare apples and oranges? You you can't always do that, you know. And so when some things are different, st- stage-wise, show-wise, that, that's where you really see, you know, the, the comparison. Up-tempo songs with the raspiness, the preaching style approach, you can see the similarities. But, but then I think you want to see the distinctiveness of them. And I like his ballads. I like James Brown ballads. They're very different. Unlike some of the up-tempo songs, they're very similar. This was so fantastic, Dr. Mosby. You're like a walking Black culture encyclopedia. Thank you for the time. This was, been, this was so fun for me. All right, same to you. Okay. I'm Bridget Todd. Thanks for listening to Beef. And remember to stay petty. Who knows how far it'll take you? Ever heard of Stoicism? Chances are, if you have, you've heard of Stoicism with a lowercase s and not Stoicism with an uppercase s. Lone wolves, no emotions, antisocial behavior, cold, indifference, all that is Stoicism with a lowercase s. Stoicism with an uppercase s is the ancient Greek philosophy and virtue ethics framework that centers on service to the cosmopolis, to include your family, friends, community, and planet, and the development of a good moral character. My name is Tanner Campbell, and I'm the host of Practical Stoicism, a three times a week podcast teaching Stoic principles and concepts to anyone interested through the exploration of texts and deep dives into various moral topics. You can find Practical Stoicism where you're already listening to podcasts by searching for Practical Stoicism or by going to stoicismpod.com. I invite you to give it a listen today. You just might like it. Next Chapter Podcasts.